Choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. Today is the first Monday in May, and it's 12 o'clock, which means it's time for Book Choice, the one hour a month where we get to talk about books, what we're reading, what we want to read and sometimes even what we wish we'd never read. My name is Paige Nick, and I'm your book choice host here on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. We've got a great show lined up for you this month. In fact, it's so full that I'm going to get straight into it with very little prologue. Our first review is of a book that's been a massive global award winner, with Beverly Ruiz Muller weighing in on Shaggy Bane by Douglas Stewart. This devastating book has achieved huge critical acclaim winning the Booker Prize in 2020. I'm hoping Beverly not only tells us a bit about the book, but also gives us some insight into the Booker Prize, which is one of the most prestigious book prizes out there. The most recent winner of the Booker Prize, Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart, is a raw, grief-grinding account of a mother's hopeless addiction and a young son's struggle to keep her alive in the poverty-pocked region of Glasgow after Margaret Thatcher's gutting of their lifeblood heavy industry. Never rich before, now those who lived there were not just on their knees but laid out flat. Yet I need to emphasize this. Do not imagine that this book is not beautiful in its own idiosyncratic way. It bears the glory of a creative work streaked with personal grief, plundered with hunger and abuse, yet still survives to reveal facets that are both ugly and at the same time tender, loving and exquisite in their own fragile way. This debut novel is closely based on Stuart's own experience, confirming the held view that most first novels are, in essence, autobiographical. His background did not foresee, to put it mildly, that such fame as becoming a Booker Prize winner would lie in his future. His own mother struggled against her addictions and lost, after her husband had fled, leaving her with young Stuart and his other siblings. He grew up very poor indeed, in a house with no books and few expectations. He was not allowed to study literature, instead entering the world of creative design, and he now lives in the United States. What his background did was teach Stuart to be strong. Growing up in Glasgow during that era was so hard that they had to become reluctant optimists by sheer default. They were already at the very bottom of the dip. In an interview he has said, it is very Scottish to be direct about difficult things, and he has certainly not flinched from that. Shuggy Bane, the novel, is a full frontal attack on any pretensions, written in a broad dialect that is skillfully handled. Shuggy is the youngest of three siblings, the son of Agnes Bane and a missing father who could no longer cope with her uncontrolled alcoholism that drives her and her family deeper and deeper into the poverty they already inhabit. She is good-looking and proud, but the bottom of the bottle puts paid to any aspirations or decency she might harbour. She believes in a mythical future in which somehow she and her barons will be saved, even as she fails yet again. Their slow shuffle from poor to desperate is inexorable, heartbreaking. The squalor is shocking. 
Yang Shugi's urgent belief that he can save her is eventually worn down to a point where he must make a terrible decision, which is, in essence, a choice between her life or his future. It is a choice no child should have to make. Yet what I am left of the book is the sense that I had read something quite exceptional, a skein of unlikely beauty spun from a grubby cocoon. I am certain that I did not gain everything from it that I should have, for the visceral shock of it ran deep. I shall need to return probably more than once to pay homage to this remarkable work. It is not frankly a book you will enjoy reading, but it is a powerful work of literature that I am certain will remain a part of all who read it, and also a marker for how great things can be forged from the most unpromising material. It is a triumph in so many different ways. Very highly recommended. That was Beverly Roosmuller here on Fine Music Radio discussing Shaggy Bane by Douglas Stewart. And you're listening to Book Choice, and I'm your host, Paige Nick. I don't know about you, but I'm fascinated by booksellers. Maybe it's because most book lovers like me dream about how romantic it would be to own a bookstore. I suspect it's not as easy in real life as it is in my dreams. That's why we asked Beryl Eichenberger to reach out to Mervyn Sloman. He's the owner of one of South Africa's most famous and most loved independent bookshops, the Book Lounge in Rowland Street, Cape Town. She wanted to find out from Mervyn what it's really like to be a bookseller, especially in this time of COVID. The Book Lounge is definitely one of our favourite places to catch up on all things bookish. There's a palpable passion that threads through the store, with places to rest and read and sip on a cup of coffee while browsing the shelves, better than a weekend away. But over the last year, we've been starved of our visits. I spoke to owner extraordinaire Mervyn Sloman on what it was like to be a bookseller during lockdown and more. Morning, Mervyn, and thanks for coming on air with us. So what has it been like? Hi, Beryl. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I guess the first word would be challenging. Um, It's been a very difficult, interesting, challenging year for everybody, and we're not exempt from that in in any way. Um, Your intro reflected the book lounge as a space uh, which is a welcoming and chilled space for people to come and spend time in, and obviously that hasn't been uh, sort of possible for large parts of the last year. we also, as you know, do in normal times loads and loads of events and launches yeah. and that kind of thing. And that's all gone out the window. Um, and I don't see those coming back anytime soon. So we've had to really reconfigure the way we work and how we communicate with people about books, how we get books into people's hands. Um, and it's, it has been, has been a challenge. But we've had tremendous support um, from very, very loyal and loving customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, so we've, we've survived. We're doing a lot more remote selling. So people email us and go, you know, what do you recommend? These are the last two books I enjoyed. I really want something else. And we send them an invoice. They pay. We deliver. Yes, I've taken advantage of that, although I was desperate to get into the book lounge and I came in to collect my books. But, <laughs> but yes, there's been a, a more connectedness, very much so. I, I get all your newsletters and I see mm. what you're recommending. But um, you had quite a few literacy and library programs. How has lockdown affected that? Because you, you were very much to the fore in what you were doing. We have been for the last couple of years working with a school in Gugulete called Inchinga mm-hmm. Primary. And so what we do there is we, we put in what we call an open box, um, which is, it's a box, but it's a, it's a very, very, very big um, structure. 
And we fill that with a bunch of books which are um, relevant to, to the kids in that particular grade, as well as some other kind of uh, learning and educational materials. Um, we had to put that on hold last year for obvious reasons, um, but we have now started that again. We have just put um, had, had the boxes constructed, and they've gone into the grade one classes this year, um, and we're in the process of getting a whole bunch of books together to, to take out there. Uh, we have in the past also, you know, sort of gone out there and done story times and got the kids sure. in here to the shop as well. That kind of stuff's impossible sure. at the moment. So it's it's a sort of gradual trying to get back to what we were doing before. Um, but obviously we have to be patient and we have to be responsible. Absolutely. So, you know, just going back to what we've been experiencing over the last year, Reading habits, did they change during lockdown? Did you find that, that people were reading different things, more escapism? Um, you know, were, were you able to gauge that at all? There's been a definite shift that we've picked up in terms of our customers. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how sort of representative that is, you know, more broadly. And, and that has been a, a big shift towards fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've always had you know, very strong uh, fiction sales, um, you know, stronger than a lot of other stores. Um, all our, our booksellers here are passionate about fiction and good novels. But there definitely seems to be a, more of a reluctance uh, for people to read nonfiction over the last year. And I think that part of that is around people being sort of inundated with news slash current affairs slash whatever more than in the past in different ways. So, you know, people constantly looking at, you know, news feeds online, social media, all that kind of thing. And reading has, I think, performed more of a function of taking people away from the immediate reality in which people are living. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that, that's my take on it. Yeah. I don't have any evidence, but definitely a big shift for us in terms of much higher proportion of, of fiction. And any particular authors who've sort of jumped out this year who were maybe not as popular previously? No, I don't think, I, you know, we we sell books that people are excited about and that we're excited about. Um, I don't think within fiction there's a, a genre that has benefited okay. um, from, from lockdown or anything like that. So... Of course, the big question is Open Book Festival. You have captured Cape Town's imagination with your festivals, which I think have been going for 10 years now. Um, Am I right? Uh, That's right, yeah. So last year would have been number 10 with all sorts of celebrations. (laughs) Yes, well, so on hold. But what are the plans there? You, You did do a few podcasts Mm. Um, but are you looking forward to this year or are you going to hold back for another year until we sort of feel that we're completely out of the woods, so to speak? We are working on two scenarios for this year at the moment. Um, The one is a sort of hybrid model, Mm -hmm. um, which enables us to do some in-person events over a weekend in September. Um, It will be on a much smaller scale than in the past. We would do it in, in, in different venues, combination of inside and outside. Yeah, smaller numbers, fewer authors, obviously no international writers. Right. Um, and then that would be complemented by a digital program. Okay. Because- if we hit a point where September, it is you know impossible, irresponsible to even do smaller events, mm-hmm. then 
we're just going to do a, a sort of digital programming uh, for the course of September. So would that include uh, Zoom events, you know, because then you can get international authors? We're looking at different options in terms of how we put together a, a really interesting digital program, different to the kinds of things that are going on mm. at the moment. Oh, good. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but it still it won't include international writers. Uh-huh. Um, one of the you know sort of tragedies of of um, what has happened over the last year in the pandemic, in terms of local writers, is a lack of impetus for new books that have been published. They mm-hmm. haven't been able to launch them. They haven't been able to engage with readers. And my feeling is that even doing things digitally opens up the world. It's our responsibility to provide a platform for local writers who have missed out on so much over the last year. So this the, the festival, whether it's combination of physical and digital or just digital is going to be entirely local. Mervyn, that's the perfect note to end on. I think that everybody will be delighted to hear that. So thank you so much for giving us your time this morning. I think we could have spoken for a lot longer, but thanks and good luck. And I'm looking forward to whatever happens with Open Book. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Beryl. song was the first of may and it was composed by the brothers gibb or otherwise known to us as the Bee Gees, and sang by jill kirkland 
I'm Paige Nick, and you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. Reviewer Leanne Voicey joins us in the studio with a deeply personal, moving, and interesting review of a book called Madness, Stories of Uncertainty and Hope by Dr. Sean Bauman, a psychiatrist at Falkenberg for the last 25 years, and also someone who Leanne has actually worked with. So there's a lot of insight and empathy here. At a glance, mental illness is probably somewhere up there with a plague, as a subject one does not want to dwell on too much. Dr. Sean Bowman undertakes the massive task of trying to make some sort of sense out of chaos in his courageous book, Madness, Stories of Uncertainty and Hope. I had a personal reason for being interested in what this well-respected specialist psychiatrist and consultant had to say. As a yoga teacher at Falkenberg Hospital for almost 10 years now, I've come to form my own opinions and ideas about the patients that I've taught and often learned from. Dr. Bowman writes without drama and pity about his 25 years working at Falkenberg Psychiatric Hospital in the Western Cape. In fact, he takes us further back than that, to the beginning, when the Cape Colony was first established. He writes of how fear and violence between the settlers and the indigenous people created a sense of the other right from the start. How, since 1891, Falkenberg has stood on the banks of the Black River, apart and alone, housing souls who too have come apart, in a sense. Not taking the easy route by titillating the reader with gruesome and outlandish anecdotes collected over the course of his career, Dr. Bowman has rather arranged his book into 41 chapters, which cover many aspects of mental illness. In a writing style I would loosely describe as layman's academic. The book covers a lot of ground and provides much food for thought. Yet throughout runs the theme, we don't understand, we don't know, we're not sure. With psychiatry being an inexact science and the human mind being so complex and frail, he does not pretend to give any definitive answers or theories. The book itself open-ended, reflects the vagaries of mental normalness and how doctors often struggle to give relief which is lasting. The book is hauntingly illustrated by award-winning artist Fiona Moody. She brings a resonant, imaginative flavour to each of the book's chapters, and her beautiful artwork encourages one to take a few moments to reflect on the text. Dr. Bowman's wish is to teach us that madness is neither the dramatics depicted in films and theatre, nor the dry blandness discussed in textbooks and research material. So much so, that he wrote a well-received cantata, Madness, Songs of Hope and Despair, which premiered at the Baxter Theatre in 2017. This book, published in 2020, is a testament to the respect and care he has for the many people he has strived to help over the years. Madness, Stories of Uncertainty and Hope by Dr. Sean Bowman is published by Jonathan Ball Publishers and is available as an e-book. Thanks, Leanne. I also saw that this book has been long-listed for the 2021 Sunday Times CNA Non-Fiction Literary Awards, so I'm sure it's well worth the read. On a lighter note, and because a picture is worth a thousand words, we're joined by Leslie Beek, who will be taking us through some brand new picture books published by Bumble for our younger readers. Is there anything nicer than opening an envelope and taking out a brand new picture book? Well, yes, as it happens, Taking out six new picture books is a distinct improvement. 
But who, in this difficult time, has published six new books? Bumble books. That's who, and they are beautiful. Making a picture book is an art form, a seriously underestimated art form. It takes time and patience, perseverance, artistic and stylish inspiration, time, more patience, and a lot of passion, and more patience. It takes an idea from a dream to a reality of paper and print, and the delicious scent of new paper and ink that I am smelling right now. It results in the feel of a new paper, the sound of crisp pages. You can't taste it, but younger children sometimes do. It's an all-encompassing experience. Penguin and Bear, written by Deirdre Matia and illustrated by Maria Lebedeva. Sorry, <laughs> Maria Lebedeva. Lebedeva by Maria Lebedeva ticked all of those boxes and more for me. It is a story of friendship and distance and memory and faithfulness. I loved it. Penguin and Bear were friends. They did not need many words. They understood each other. They played together, running and exploring and jumping and tumbling, especially if it involved sticks and water. They also enjoyed football and breakdancing and eating cookies, and were really good at it. Penguin and Bear lived in a faraway land of blue and white. But one day, Penguin's family had to move to a new place. Penguin and Bear had to say goodbye. We all know what goodbye is like, especially when we are going to the other end of the earth. But Penguin thought of Bear. Bear remembered Penguin. Friendship survived and grew, even though they were apart. There are obvious lessons in this story, but more importantly, there is a compelling story that young and not so young children can relate to, and illustrations they can wonder at. The Woodcutter's Dream by Shelley Mysel, with illustrations by Cher Cheryl Neve, is another story with a subtle message. Joe, the woodcutter, is sent to cut down a tree that is annoying the owners of the land where it stands. The birds cannot understand this at all. Nobody owns a tree, they say. It was a tree that was important to the birds, their meeting place. Joe started to climb the tree, and as he climbed, he cut the branches. The noise made the word the birds fly away. All but one who asks Joe, "Why? Why is he doing this?" Joe answers, "It's my job. It was making a mess for the owners." The bird doesn't understand. People don't own trees, he says. Maybe not, answers Joe, but they do cut them down, and it is my job. He started to cut the top of the tree, and the bird flew away. Nobody can bring this particular tree back, but Joe thinks about what the bird has said. When he goes home that night, he tells his family about the birds and the tree. He thinks he thinks about what trees give to people as well as birds. That night, Joe dreamed he was a bird with multicolored wings, looking for a tree to land in, but there were none. Joe looks in his shed the next day, and there is a small tree in a pot ready to plant. The bird that had spoken to him flew down and landed next to him. One day, this tree will be tall and strong and old, and birds will meet and nest. Children will play in its shade and climate. Friendship and trees. Important messages, delicious stories, and presented in the most magic format of all—the children's picture book.
Penguin and Bear is by Deirdre Motier and illustrated by Maria Lebedeva. The Woodcutter's Dream is by Shelley Meisel, illustrated by Cheryl Neve. Both were published by Bumble Books in Cape Town in 2021. Bumble Books was winner of the Bologna Prize as Children's Publisher of the Year for Africa in 2016. The show is just packed with award-winning books this month. I also wanted to add that to promote these titles, Bumble has launched a Buy One, Donate One campaign. So if you buy any one or two or three of these new picture book titles, Bumble will donate the equivalent books to a needy organization. I think it's a really great cause, and these are really great books. And now our own John Hanks, who really likes to get around, is touring a book called The West Coast, From Maltbos to the Orange River by Leon Nell. I hope my dad is listening to this review. Dad, I think you'll love this book. The title of this book, The West Coast from Malkbos to the Orange River, might give the impression that it contained details of lodges, hotels, self-catering facilities, campsites and restaurants to be found in and around South Africa's West Coast. This beautifully illustrated production is not your traditional tourist guide, but as Leonel says, it's, and I quote, a keepsake, a treasure trove of information, a book to pick up and enjoy, stacked with stories, local folk and legends, an introduction to this unique land and its people, a book to arouse your interest in an area you thought you knew. End quote. He could not have said it better. I've visited many of the places he described in the book, and his superb photographs make me want to go back and spend more time at these incomparable destinations again. I say this because what really opened my eyes was how little I know about local folklore and the early history of the settlements, coupled with the fascinating maritime history of the bays, let alone the importance and well-preserved archaeological sites such as Elands Bay Cave. The journey to write this book took seven years, and by spending time in even the smallest town, meeting and speaking to some of the eccentric and remarkably hospitable residents, Leon Nell has unearthed a veritable treasure trove of absorbing stories which make this such an enjoyable read. Including here are the original names of most of the settlements. I wonder how many listeners know how places like Hopefield, Freydendal, Veltrift got their names, and how about Titisby? I'm sure you can conjure up a number of titillating explanations for its origin, including one that may come from the adjacent curvaceous dunes, but the accepted story is that the name came from a local trader, Jacques Tichus. Leonel clearly enjoys his food and wine, calling attention to some of South Africa's excellent vineyards and very special restaurants found on the west coast, including Wolfgart in Paternoster, voted Restaurant of the Year at the 2019 World Restaurant Awards. He's also explored the origin of what many regard as a uniquely delicious salty delicacy, which has become synonymous with the West Coast, Bockham. Bockham's made from mullet caught in the Berg River at Feltdrift, and then salted, dried and cured naturally by the sun and wind to be enjoyed with white wine or with bread, jam and coffee. I particularly enjoyed the photographs and accounts of the fishing folk and their boats which he came across in his travels. Fishing, 
fishmongers and restaurants are still the mainstay of the economy of most of the coastal settlements, and those who work there need our support and understanding to counteract the extremely negative perceptions of what they do, which was so unfairly portrayed in the recent film *Seaspiracy*. I was delighted to see that Falloran Flay was well covered, a favourite destination of mine on the west coast. For those who do not know it, Falloran Flay is one of the largest natural wetlands on that part of South Africa. A great place to observe some of the seventy-five species of water birds recorded there, particularly large numbers of great white pelicans and big flocks of greater and lesser flamingos, and over one hundred other species recorded from the surrounding vegetation and cliffs. I will end this review with a quote from the French novelist Marcel Proust. Which Leon Noel has in his book, and here's the quote: "The real voyage of discovery consists not only in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes." End quote. This book will most certainly open new eyes and encourage those that think they know the area to return again. I have no hesitation in strongly recommending it to anyone wanting to discover or know more about this most attractive part of South Africa. The title again: "The West Coast from Melkbos to the Orange River," written by Leon Nell, published in 2021 by Penguin Random House and Straight Nature, Cape Town, and you can buy a copy for 300 rand. <laughs> Lusty month of May, that lovely month when everyone goes blissfully astray. Tralla, it's here that shocking time of year when tons of wicked little thoughts merrily appear. It's May, it's May, that gorgeous holiday when every maiden prays that her lad will be a cad. It's mad, it's gay, a libelous display. Those dreary vows that. Everyone takes, everyone breaks, everyone makes divine mistakes. The dusty months of May. Whence this fragrance wafting through the air? What sweet feelings does it send, transmute? Whence this perfume floating everywhere? Don't you know it's that dear forbidden fruit? Tra la 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 la. Everyone knows.
the lusty month of May from Lerner and Lowe's musical Camelot, sung by Julie Andrews, right here on Book Choice and Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. And before the break, John Hanks was chatting about a book called The West Coast, From Melkbos to the Orange River by Leon Nell, just in case you missed the title. And now, a book about a slightly less beautiful landscape. Anthony Frijon reviews iconic journalist and author Mandy Wiener's latest expose. It's called The Whistleblowers, this is another book that's been long listed for the 2021 Sunday Times CNA Nonfiction Literary Awards, so please do look out for us. The act of bravery can take many forms. There is the bravery that is born out of the fight to survive. This is instinctive, with no thought given to the consequences. There's the bravery where one knows that one is putting oneself at risk in order to help someone else. There are soldiers, sailors, airmen, police, and others who serve us, and frequently face danger time after time, under no illusions about the possible outcome, knowing that they could possibly be seriously injured or even die. This is a tough, cold, calculated bravery. Then there is the bravery that Mandy Wiener has written about with sensitivity and a deep understanding of the people involved in the whistleblowers. These are the people who have taken the very bold step of coming forward to expose something illegal, wrongdoing, to someone in authority, especially in the corporate world or government. By their actions, they risk unemployment, bullying, being ostracized by colleagues, friends, and in some cases, even family. In extreme cases, Whistleblowers have been killed, murdered. Wayne Duvenhage of Outer believes that whistleblowers are motivated by what he calls moral courage. These people are extremely courageous. In the introduction, she goes into detail as to who qualifies as a whistleblower and who does not. This can be a highly contentious issue. Thanks to her excellent writing and valuable comments from various expert commentators, we are given a valuable insight into this question. In this outstanding book, Mandy Wiener has interviewed 13 whistleblowers who tell their stories. Having read the interviews, whatever their motives were, and being aware of the possible consequences of their disclosures, I think they're shown great courage. There are those who remain nameless, Anonymous, their contribution as sources for journalists and investigators is invaluable, and they also deserve our gratitude. At present, to quote Mandy Wiener, the legislation designed to protect whistleblowers has proven to be horribly inadequate. Consequently, there is little faith in the system as it stands. Sadly, to the shame of those in positions of authority who can take action. By the time that Mandy Wiener wrote this book, very few high-level prosecutions have taken place. Easy for us to judge their motives. But until you've read this excellent book, in fact, this is a serious work. Think very carefully 
before jumping to any conclusions. And once you've read it, ask yourself, knowing what you know now, would you blow the whistle? To end on a quote from Cervantes' Don Quixote, the truth may be stretched thin, but it never breaks, and it always surfaces above lies as oil floats on water. Mandy Weiner has been a highly respected reporter for nearly 17 years, and she's written four acclaimed books, including Killing Kebble. The Whistleblowers is her latest, and well worth reading. Published by Picador, recommended retail price, 310 rand. Powerful stuff. I'm a huge fan of Mandy Weiner. What a talent. And we could really use more brave, exacting journalists like her in South Africa. We couldn't do a book show this month without bringing up the recent terrible fires in Cape Town and the great losses that we've incurred as the library at UCT went up in flames. The true extent of the damage is still to be fully understood, but it can't be anything other than far-reaching and devastating. So it's timeless that Melvin Minar talks to us about Burning the Books by Richard Ovenden. The visual horror of the stately UCT Jagger Library on fire the orange glow through the windows, the understated danger of the plumes of smoke from the roof, the helplessness of the assembled firefighters, was a coincidental, utterly vivid realization of a book that gripped me the past month, a book about the destruction of history and knowledge and the evil that lies beneath. In both a title and purpose substantially subtitled A History of the Deliberate Destruction of Knowledge, one reads the urgency Burning the Books by Richard Ovenden, CEO of the famous Bodleian Libraries of Oxford at the University, is nothing short of a manifesto for saving our souls from what he sees as the quagmire of misinformation, overload of data, and the obliteration of historical truth in today's world. In typical English understatement, Ovenden is known as Bodley's librarian, in charge of millions of documents. By using the word burning for his wonderfully readable essays on various destructions of libraries and archives over a long history, he conjures up a remarkable primordial urgency at a time when we sometimes not only feel overwhelmed, but also threatened by views and loads of unfiltered information. His message is essentially a plea for space for the old fashioned librarian, guardians of knowledge, sentinels of fact, keepers of history. But also, as he relates various historical burning of the book events, he often captures the heroism of those very going about their business custodians of books as they try to save, protect and defend. When, for instance, the National and University Library of Bosnia and Herzegovina in Sarajevo was deliberately attacked by the Serbian artillery in August 1992, the institution's staff, inspired by the people of the city, Serbs, Croats, Jews and Muslims, to form a human chain to rescue books. Somehow we have a deep need to hold on to our past and its records. Ovenden starts with early Mesopotamia and the destruction of the great library of Ashurbanidabal in 612 BCE, taking the famous political texts such as the Nazi bonfires of the books in 1933 and concludes specific historical episodes with Facebook and Twitter, detailing method and motive of those who have burned, buried or deleted the texts which record the story of the human race. Among the dark political motivations for getting rid of books, 
Ovenden also tells of famous individuals who set about to self-eliminate their own writs. Franz Kafka, who ordered his work to be destroyed, and the poet Philip Larkin, who requested that his diaries be burned. Kafka's wasn't, Larkin's was. To Ovenden, the latter is a depressing loss. He touches on officialdom that destroys documents and archives and mentions the problems of safeguarding the valuable information gleaned, for example, at our Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings. To him, all records are treasure, and he fears its future. The burning of the Jagger Library a few days ago destroyed treasure and reminded me so dramatically of Ovenden's all-too-urgent concerns in the fine Burning the Books. Thank you, Melbourne. That was Burning the Books by Richard Ovenden. There couldn't be a better person than Vanessa Levenstein to interview Tim Jenkins. He's the author of Escape from Pretoria. So I've been looking forward to this interview about the very famous prison break. It's the stuff of Hollywood blockbusters. Three political prisoners escape a high-security prison. Their strongest weapons, ingenuity, brilliance, patience and determination. Escape from Pretoria by Tim Jenkin is the autobiographical account of how Tim and two other prisoners carved their way, quite literally, to freedom. Joining us today telephonically on Book Choice is author Tim Jenkin. Welcome. Good day, Vanessa. Your book was first published, I think, 1987, and later adapted for the movie by the same name starring Daniel Radcliffe. It's now being republished with an epilogue. What does it feel like revisiting this period of your life? Well, it's something I've never been allowed to forget because I've written the book three times now. (laughs) The first edition came out in 1987, the second one in 2003, and this is the uh, hopefully the final version. You know, each time it looks a bit different when you look back in history. Even the language you use changes. So the first one about it was still there, so I was writing about the current situation. The next one, it was in the past tense, and now it's sort of like in the deep past tense. So it, it changes over time. Interesting. And... Um, look, you were an extra in the movie, you watch the scenes being filmed, and you keep, you, as you've said, you've rewritten the book three times. Are you able to detach from the fear you felt at the time? Well, yes. Uh, now, it's, it's when I read the book, it's like reading someone else's story. It's hard to believe that, I, that the story is about me and that I was involved in it, in the things we had to do in those days, you know. Today, if you wanted distribute some literature. You you literally stand on the side of the road and hand it out to people. And then you had these very interesting contraptions. Yes. (laughs) They were called leaflet bombs, but they weren't bombs in any sense of the word. They were simply exploding devices that threw leaflets up into the air. They were quite harmless. But it just went bang, you know, and then that attracted people's attention. And indeed, we saw that in the opening of the movie, yes. which was filmed in Australia and with no South African actors in the cast. How did you feel about that? Well, we all wanted it to be filmed in South Africa, but there were delays. You know, when, when you book um, a high-grade actor like Daniel Radcliffe, you can't just say, oh, we'll do it next month or next month. You book them for a slot and you have to take out insurance. So unfortunately, we couldn't make it in South Africa in the slot that they'd booked him for, so they created another slot in Australia. 
The relit was just a technical thing. Something small like that. Mm. <laughs> now, what wasn't small was your prison break. You carved keys from discarded pieces of wood in the prison workshop. Did anything in your pre-prison life prepare you for this completely innovative task? Well, I guess there were a few things. You know, I was a, a kid who loved to make models, and I learned how to make tools. My parents had, uh, you know, a workshop with all the tools, so I, I knew about tools. And uh, I knew how locks worked, you know. I was a curious kid and often opened locks and just to see what's inside. I had a good idea of what was in the locks. So, you know, I could visualize how to make the key. And I did uh, woodworking at school. So I knew how to, to work with wood and to make models. And really it was like making a model of a real key. I'm sure your woodwork teacher in a million years never thought he was preparing you for that task. Yeah. I remember as a teenager the story breaking, and we all had the image of you jogging out of prison. You write in your book, despite our efforts to deny we had disguised ourselves as joggers, the fictional story was presumably more appealing than the boring, correct one that we gave. Why was this? Well, it was an assumption. They couldn't assume that we had a full kit of of civilian clothing, you know, they had to assume that we left in our prison clothing, although we were allowed to have sports clothing, so we had uh, white t-shirts and uh, shorts. So that's how they assumed that we did it, so they couldn't say, you know, <laughs> well they didn't know, and even if they did know, it wouldn't have sounded good on their part, so they probably still would have said that we'd jogged away to freedom in our, in our prison outfit. Jogged All away. they could do. Jogged away to freedom, escaping the shackles that bind us. It's a very strong metaphor. How would you relate escaping from our own prisons to us right now in the midst of a pandemic? Well, um, I don't know how it can apply to a pandemic, but um, I've always used the escape as an analogy for overcoming or escaping either personal uh, challenges or you know, work challenges or anything that you take upon yourself to do. Um, it's an approach, you know, um, escaping from a prison. You can't just sit on your bunk and make a plan. You have to do it in stages, so you can't really plan it. The planning evolves with the practice of getting there. So, in fact, we escape from our prison, not from the prison, but all the way to the front door a number of times. So the actual escape was... You know, we'd done trial runs, and it was the easiest part because we knew we could do it. And um, most challenges are like that. You have to go in stages. You go, as it were, to the next metaphorical door, whatever that hurdle is, and you don't know what's beyond that hurdle, so you get there and you, you breach that or jump over that hurdle, and then you get a different picture, and uh, the picture keeps changing as we you go along. We knew we could do it. I love that line. Yes. Because without that belief, you wouldn't have done it. No, absolutely. If um, It's one of the things we realized in the beginning that you can't escape just by taking a chance, you know, hoping that one day they'll just leave the keys by mistake or leave the door open by mistake. It doesn't work like that. You have to plan how to escape. And then there's the second part, which is the most important, really, is getting away or securing your freedom. That's where most escapes fail because they don't think beyond 
the front door. Thank you so much. I've been speaking to Tim Jenkins, author of Escape from Pretoria, a fascinating, thrilling, gripping read. We roamed the fields and riverside when we were young and gay. We chased the bees and plucked the flowers in the merry, merry month of May. Oh yes, with ever-changing sports, we wild the other way. The skies were bright, our heads were light in the merry, merry month of May. Our voices echoed through the glen with blithe and joyful ring. We built our huts of mossy stones and we dabbled in the hillside spring. Oh yes, with ever-changing towards, we wild the hours away. The skies were bright, our heads were light in the merry, merry month of May. To meet and grieve to part We sighed when night came on We went to rest with longing heart For the coming of the bright day dawn Oh yes, with ever-changing sports We filed the hours away The skies were bright, our heads were light In the merry, merry month of May That song was in the merry, merry month of May Sung by Nelson Eddy Here on Fine Music Radio where you're very wisely tuned into Book Choice. And I'm your bookie host, Paige Nick. Did you know Book Choice on Fine Music Radio is sponsored by Exclusive Books? So in our guest slot this month, we reached out to Batya Bricker. She's the general manager of Exclusive Books. And we asked her to tell us about some of the top picks she's seen flying off their shelves this month. The beauty of Exclusive Books Recommends is that you have 25 fresh titles every month at the front of the store, Um, books that are trending, that people are talking about, and you get to pick what you'd like to read and look at or save for next to your bed every month, a new selection. My favorites for this month include Isabel Allende's The Soul of a Woman. Isabel Allende is the multi-award winning author, Chilean author, and she came of age in the 1960s and rode the first wave of feminism. But she talks about how we stand and almost live the lives our mothers wanted to live. And she recognizes that it's now her daughter who's going to have to continue her legacy and live her life. And so this is almost a manifesto to her daughter and to woman granddaughters and daughters, very moving, very beautiful, and certainly worth picking up. And similar to that, but from Marita van der Feyfer, also an award-winning author, born in Cape Town, now living half her time in France. She's written in English and Afrikaans, a book called A Long Letter to My Daughter. And this really is a love letter to a daughter, to a language, to a country, in a way that only Marita van der Feyfer can do. And it's a mother's effort to make sense of a world that seems increasingly senseless. It's classic Marita van der Feyfer. You will love it and will just want to spend time with Marita, whether in English or Afrikaans. Another book that lots of people are talking about, and in fact, people are saying this might be the book of the year, is P.P. Faree's The Heart is the Size of a Fist. It's also available in Afrikaans, and it's a very poignant coming of age and coming out tale as Paul discovers his identity, and it's a story of brotherly love and a way of understanding his very troubled past 
it's an incredibly powerful book and the people are talking about it. So it's certainly worth taking a look if this is for you. And the last one I wanted to just chat about was Toko. This is by Nikki Daly. It's a children's book. And if any of you know Jamela, if you haven't read Jamela, any of the Jamela stories for kids, you absolutely have to. Jamela is sassy. She's got attitude. She makes mistakes. She's adorable. And um, there are a whole range of adventures. But this is Toko. And Toko is another local heroine. She who is kind-hearted. She's creative. She's full of fun. But, of course, she meets it's it's 21st century living. So Toko has to meet her mom's new boyfriend and clean up the beach during a recycling project. So it's relevant. It's South African. It smacks of Nikki Daly's wit and and humor. And even though he's in his 80s, it has that childlike wonder that you really want to capture. And the last one, just to mention, is Jeremy Maggs, My Final Answer. Who cannot remember that line, who wants to be a millionaire? That is Jeremy Maggs. But this is his, his story about how the stories get made, how journalists put together tales, and it's a behind-the-scenes look. There is so much to find on Exclusive Books Recommends, and this is just a touch of what you can expect. And me, I've been reading a lot lately too. I mean, how can you not when there's so many great books being published right now? So when it comes to really good fiction, I can absolutely recommend The Artist Vanishes by Terry Westby Nunn, published by Penguin Books. This is a very cleverly told literary-ish mystery thriller. It's one of the best I've read. I got completely caught up in it, and I thought about it when I put it down, and I was scheming about when I could get back to it. The novel runs in two parallel threads. There's then, and there's now. Then tells Sophie's story. She starts out as a struggling artist who creates powerful pieces that prod society. And after a massive grant from Big Pharma on a testicle project, Sophie hits the big time, until her next project goes horribly wrong. Someone dies, and she disappears without a trace, but with lots of suspects. Then there's the Now storyline, and that tells James's story. He's a washed-up alcoholic documentary filmmaker who's driven to create a docu about the artist's life and disappearance. It's a mystery, but with a twist. James takes the role of investigator, and the more he digs, the more secrets come out. I found it very cleverly written, easy to read, and set in Cape Town, which made it even more enjoyable for me. In the author's note at the end, she alludes to the manuscript being rescued from a publisher's slush pile. I love stories like this, especially when it turns into a really good book. So I'm so glad this book saw the light of day. I can give it five stars and a big recommend. Another book I wanted to tell you about is It's Not Inside, It's On Top by Kanya Mchali. I doubt we have very many listeners here who don't remember the famous Cremora commercial with that payoff line. It's possibly one of our most famous. This is a book of essays when Charlie looks at some of South Africa's most famous TV ads and brands between 1994 and now and excavates their history, their politics and the people and stories behind the ads. You'll recognize all your ad favorites from Give That Man a Bells to Nando's Through the Decades, Kalula's series of fun high-flying ads, Volkswagen favorites, Yebogogo and so many more. It's a brutally honest book and the author takes no prisoners with her views. Sure, time flies when you're talking books, so that's our show this month. Big thanks to all our reviewers and, of course, to Mwandi and his team at Fine Music Radio for putting the show together. And hats off to Rick Everett for all the main music. 
If you missed any of the reviews, our Book Choice podcast will be up on the Fine Music Radio website shortly. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Exclusive Books for sponsoring us. And mostly, because it rhymes, we're playing out with One Morning in May, sung by Mel Torme. One morning in May, don't forget, dear, that one wonderful day when we met, dear, the world over was blue clover, life carefree and Tonight, darling, I pray to recapture Just one hour, one flower From life's faded bouquet Kisses that came with a flame of springtime Burning your name in my heart Precious to me Like a rosary Mm-hmm.